0: so go ahead and grab your Bibles. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There should be a Bible available around you uh, in the pew. All right, and yeah, if you're new, if this is your first time here, uh, every week we go through a passage of Scripture. Uh, typically, we're doing it as we work through an entire book of the Bible, whether it's an Old Testament book or a New Testament book. Um, but we just kind of march through it uh, a few verses at a time. And we are in the book of Colossians, and in the Pew Bible, it'll be page 985. Uh, but we'll be in Colossians chapter four. And we are in our basically in the home stretch of Colossians. Paul is is getting into the, the logistics. Basically, his goodbyes are about to start, but not before our passage today. So we have three more weeks in Colossians, and then we're gonna go into a Lent series uh, called Tears of the Sun and where we're going to look at the laments of Jesus as he neared the end of his life, or was taking his last breath, and kind of what he was going through in lamenting um, to the Father. So that should be really powerful. And then we're going to have an Easter series, and then we're going to start the book of Matthew. And we're going to slog our way through the book of Matthew, and it's going to be awesome, uh, because it's a great book, and it's a gospel. So, All right, so once you're in Colossians chapter 4, go ahead and stand up. And we're going to be in verses 2 through 6 this morning. All right, so go ahead and just follow along with me as I read the scripture. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word To declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, and this is Paul talking, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person pray. God, I pray that your word would do the heavy lifting this morning, that you would move my, my mouth aside and uh, speak by your spirit powerfully in the name of Jesus, Lord. Use your word uh, according to your plan for each of our hearts, each person here, wherever they come from, wherever they have been, wherever they are in relation to you, I pray that you would move them one step closer to Jesus this morning by your word. In his name we pray, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. All right, our our sermon today is called Church is Not a Click. Come on. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> now that you're back, I'm just going to like, we're just, it's just going to be me and you, man. Um So the Oxford Dictionary defines a clique as a small group of people with shared interests or other features in common who spend their time together and do not readily allow others to join them. So we liked all of it up until that point. Today, Paul is reminding us that the church is not a clique. There's a famous quote by an English theologian, William Temple, that says, The church exists primarily for the sake of those who are still outside it. The church exists primarily for the sake of those who are still outside it. For most of the letter to the Colossians, it's four chapters, Paul has been addressing insider issues, He is concerned about those who would infiltrate the ranks of the community and lead them to embrace ideologies that are not 100% rooted in the person and work of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So he's been addressing internal issues, doctrinal issues. But all along, Paul has been reminding them, though, of his personal calling which was to reach the Gentiles, which is just another word for nations. His calling was to be the apostle that reached beyond the Jewish people to the nations, a.k.a. the rest of the world. And if we turn back just a page to chapter 1, go ahead and do that. Paul describes his missionary calling, his outward focus calling in detail. If you look at chapter 1, starting in verse 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul here is in prison. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so, Paul, there, even in the midst of a letter where he's addressing internal issues, he's making them aware, he's reminding them that he himself is outward focused, he himself has a calling to reach beyond. To those who do not yet know Jesus Christ, who have not yet heard of the hope of the gospel, of this mystery that has been made known, that was kept secret for a long time, but now is revealed. And so if Paul hadn't been outwardly focused, there's a guy named Epaphras who started the Colossian church, he would never have become a Christian. And the Colossian church wouldn't have even existed. And so Paul's outward focus has resulted in this church, which is not a Jewish area. It's ancient Turkey, and it was filled with people who were pagans, who were just the nations, who who did not know the God of Israel. And so now that Paul is wrapping up this letter, you know, before he starts his goodbyes, which he's going to do next week, he makes a final exhortation to this church. You don't exist for your own sake. You exist for those who are not yet inside. You exist for those who remain in their sin. You exist for those who do not yet know of the incredible lengths the God of the universe has gone to rescue them from what Paul calls the domain of darkness. And so Paul here in verses 2 through 6 lays out four aspects of what it means to be an outward-facing, evangelistic, good news-spreading church. They're pretty simple and easy to remember. We've got pray, prioritize, walk, and talk. Okay? Pray, prioritize, walk, and talk. So starting in verse 2, We find him exhorting them to pray. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so, this first exhortation to pray on the surface doesn't seem applicable to being outwardly focused, but it is. For Christians, the first step of mission of calling, of purpose, of doing always is first to go to God in prayer. To be with God. Why? Because we are not accomplishing our own mission. We are not accomplishing our own purpose in the world. God created us And so we receive our definition of what it means to live a good life directly from him. And without prayer, we go with our gut. And our gut is rarely correct. And so when Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, what is he saying? What he's not saying is be earnest in your prayer. Be passionate in your prayer. Although that's great. That's just not what he's saying right here. He's talking about right here, what is on your calendar. The word continue steadfastly means to be devoted to, as in persist in. In fact, it's, it's to persist obstinately in. It's something you do anyway, to persevere in. This is not spontaneous prayer, although spontaneous prayer is great. This is intentional prayer. This is scheduled prayer. This is a practice of prayer. This is prayer that no matter how you feel, you still do it. And it's okay to pray even when you don't feel like it. In Acts 2 Uh, just after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the first Christians, the group of them, they're now numbering in the thousands, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then Paul encourages the Roman church in Romans 12 to be constant in prayer. This is all the same word as continue steadfastly in. And so, This word isn't talking so much about how you pray, but that you pray. We'll get to how you pray in a minute. It's just that you pray. And it assumes both a corporate rhythm of prayer as well as individual rhythms of prayer. Remember, Paul's talking to a group of Christians here and he's saying you, group, plural you, continue steadfastly in prayer together. And so, you know, our church has several corporate rhythms of prayer that we'd love for you to join us in. Pre-service prayer at nine fifteen, Thursday morning prayer, monthly prayer and worship, and I'd love to see more rhythms of prayer start. It doesn't really matter which one; it's that. And these are not wasted times, where we could be doing something more useful. Paul can't think of anything more useful than starting with prayer. And as the church of God, Jesus' body on earth, we must receive not just our marching orders from him, not just what to do, but we also need to receive our love for one another from him and our love for the world from him. And that's how we do it is in prayer. Prayer. In prayer, we receive unity among ourselves. In prayer, we recalibrate ourselves to God's priorities. We remember that the most important things in life are often things that aren't right in front of us. They're not the things that are immediately apparent to us when we wake up. In prayer, the cobwebs that we walk around collecting get washed away the fog lifts and we remember why we're here that's what we do in prayer and then as for individual rhythms of prayer i encourage you if you are a christian this morning to set aside time every single morning to be in god's presence evening morning noon doesn't matter all three you can use the lord's prayer as you as your guide That's helpful. Or you can try out something else. An acronym, ACTS, ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Just walk through those. You can use a prayer journal for when your mind wanders. I do that because when I'm praying, I get two things in and I just, my mind's just wandering. And so I use bullet points. Literally, just bullet points. You can take a walk if you get antsy. It doesn't really matter. You can experiment with what works best for you and the way that you're wired. You can switch it up entirely. Whatever you do, don't go without. Don't go without. Over time, as God shows himself faithful to you, as he grows you, both in character and as he gives you more responsibility, your time with him will quickly become a get-to rather than a have-to. Although the have-to is there not in obligation but in just desperation. But if you set aside that time, it will become something you look forward to every day because how could you not? You know, if I, if I can't go 24 hours without intentionally connecting with Anna. If I do, I'm a mess. I'm like, don't talk to me because I'm not like on the same page as my wife. I'm not a good, it's not a good place to be for me. (laughs) I need that connection. And if that's the case for someone who's married, how much more is it the case that I need intentional time to be with my God? And so Paul starts there. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. But then Paul goes on, and he does give two descriptions for how we should pray. He says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful, that word basically just means to be awake. It's the same word Jesus uses when he suggests that we live in a way where we're awake to what's really going on. At the end of Matthew, he speaks to his coming. He says, watch you, therefore. Be about your father's business. And so Jesus suggests that we live always aware of the imminence of his return and the consummation of the kingdom of God. Paul recognizes just human nature, that we tend to get tunnel vision into our own lives, into our own needs, our priorities, our desires, our dreams, our plans, our calendar. He knows that. He recognizes that, which this is one of the reasons why we gather weekly. We gather weekly to remember that God is doing something big in the world, And it's bigger than just our individual lives. It's bigger than just our individual problems. And we get to participate in it, which is why we gather weekly to remember that, to remind ourselves of that. That's why it's so important to gather together. Come on. (laughs) Now, when Paul says being watchful in it, he's not saying watching for Jesus' coming in that we're distracted from what we need to do and we're just watching for his coming. He's saying, watch our lives in lieu of his imminent coming. You see the difference there? One is, oh, oh, what's going on in the news? Oh, Jesus might be coming soon. I'm going to sell all my possessions. I'm going to move to the mountains. I'm going to wait and wait for him. No, 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 no. When he said watch, he said watch and Work watch, and work for the kingdom. That's how you watch. You watch your life in light of the kingdom that's coming. And so Paul also recommends that we pray with thanksgiving. Now, practicing thanksgiving should be the default posture of every Christian. Why? Because Christians are supposed to be the ones who recognize that it is only by grace, only by grace, that we stand secure in the presence of God. And in light of what God has already said and done, we can practice thanksgiving, not just for his past acts, including the act of what Jesus has done for us, but all the other things that he's done for you, specifically, So we don't just thank him for what he's done in the past. We thank him for what he's going to do. Because what he's done in the past has shown us that he is faithful and will do what he's going to do. Which is return. Which is come in his full glory. Which is consummate the kingdom that we are participating in now. And so Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so, as Paul is discussing prayer here, he moves on, and he turns to ask for prayer for himself, which in turn reveals his priorities. Okay, so this leads us to our next aspect of how we become an outward-facing church. We pray, and we prioritize. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word of, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Okay, so if it's not clear from the, the verse, let me just make it clear. while writing this letter, Paul is in prison. At the very least, he is on house arrest in Rome, trained or not trained, chained to a Roman soldier. When it says, uh, I am in prison here, literally it says, I am bound. I am in chains. And so, he's in prison. He's, He's under lock and key. But did you catch what he asks prayer for? Did you catch what he doesn't ask prayer for? This blows my mind. If I were Paul, I would ask for prayer to get out of prison right? That's pretty much what we do. We're going through something hard. Someone asks, can I pray for you? You say, yeah. Can you ask for prayer that I would stop going through this thing? That's hard. That's not what Paul does. So his request for prayer here reveals his priorities. Even while in the midst of an intense season of suffering, Paul's primary desire is that God would be glorified and made known despite his circumstances. Man, I cannot relate with Paul very much here. I wish I could. (laughs) But when I encounter suffering, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, circumstantial, my perspective tends, tends to shrink down to merely my basic needs, you know. Like literally right now, there's a plumbing emergency at my house. I'm thinking about that. That's, it's hard for me to preach right now because I'm thinking about my toilet. That's, that's how I go through difficult things. That, I'm distracted by them. If you were to ask me for prayer, I'd say, can you pray for a plumber to come? Uh, give us a great price that things would clear out real quick and we'd be back to normal. But not Paul. When given the chance to ask the Colossian church to pray for him, this is what he prays for an open door for him and his companions, despite being chained up, to be able to clearly proclaim the word, the mystery of Christ. A couple interesting things to note about this prayer request. First, Paul broadens it out beyond himself. He says, pray for us, not just me, us. Again, we see that he is not a lone wolf here. He is not alone in his calling as a missionary to the nations. And then second, Paul, the greatest missionary in history, the writer of half the New Testament scriptures, he understands that even he cannot make evangelistic success happen. He says, pray that God may open a door for us. It requires God to open the door. Paul knows that there is a part that we play. But also, there's a part we don't play. There's a part we can't play. Only God can open the door, whether of circumstance or of a person's heart, to be able to hear and respond to the gospel. The gospel, that is the power of God for salvation for all who would believe. We must always recognize that. No matter, uh, you know, not just so that we can pray for God to open those doors, but so that we always remain utterly dependent on Him for results. You know, once we think that results come from our own efforts, we're in trouble. And so when you're praying, either on your own or corporately, is the spread of the gospel on your radar? Or is it just your immediate needs so that you can return to a state of comfort? This is a, Paul has major priorities here. This level of prioritization is not legislatable. (laughs) This has to come from within. I mean, you can definitely establish a practice or a discipline of praying for opportunities to share the gospel with others, whether it's coworkers or friends or family or perfect strangers. But simultaneously, you also need to get back to the basics yourself. Do you know? Do you remember how loved you are by God? Right now. Is the gospel, which is a, just a word that means good news, is, is it still good news for you today? If it's not, if, it, if it's a vague sense of goodness, I'd, I'd say reexamine it. Rediscover it. You know, it's like a beloved album that you find buried in your stack of records. You throw it on, you listen to it, and you go, oh, yes. This is why I remembered that album. Records are still cool, right? They will remain cool. Do that with the gospel. Dig deeper just for your own sake. Only then will you, from the inside out, desperately want it for others. You'll be able to prioritize it, even in the midst of trials, because God is doing something bigger. hmm (laughs) <laughs> and Paul, he doesn't stop with prayer, of course, and prioritization. He, he now gets practical. And he gets practical not just for his own ministry, but for the Colossian church's own gospel ministry. For those who are outside the church. And his recommendations to them are pretty simple. Walk and talk. Walk and talk. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What should be our posture for those who aren't here today? Not, you know, our friends who are Christians who are on vacation. I'm talking about for those outside these walls, as in outside the kingdom. Even for you, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm asking our church, what should our posture be toward you? Are we just supposed to be polite, avoiding the topic of faith, spirituality, or religion as we go about our daily lives? Except for when we're here, we can talk faith here. Well, to be a good Seattleite, yes, you should just stop at politeness. (laughs) You can stop there. But if Jesus is who he said he was, if sin and the brokenness of this world is as serious as he said it was, and if history is headed where he said it is, then we're not just here to be polite. We're here to make disciples. There's an urgency in Paul's tone here. He says, we need to make the best use of the time. And we all know what it's like to be in a time crunch. We're modern Americans. That is the definition of a modern American. You are in a time crunch. And for me, even my family, because of the season we're in and that I'm in personally, I always feel like I'm in a time crunch. Like, always. Always. Paul and Jesus say that we are in a time crunch. Jesus put it this way. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. And then he said, night is coming when no one can work. We only have a limited amount of time. And there's a few reasons for that. You know, first, Jesus could return at any time. When the the disciples watched him ascend into the heavens and the angels came and said, what are you guys staring up at the sky for? And they're like, well, Jesus just went up there. And they're like, he's going to come down in the same way he went up. And then they were commissioned. He's going to come down in the same way he went up. And that could happen at any time. We don't know when. We don't know when. We have no idea when. But it is imminent. So, he could return at any time. Second, we are finite human beings. We only have limited time on earth. We are each only one person. We are limited, and our time is limited. That's it. Third, and most importantly, we only have limited time with each person we encounter. Every time you see someone, it could be the last time. Everything about the time we have is limited. Therefore, the time we do have is incredibly and even eternally valuable. The word Paul uses for making the best use of the time literally just means buy it up. Buy up the time. You see all that time that's on the shelf? Buy all of it because it's going. But before Paul gets into the talk, before he starts saying, talk the talk, first he recommends that this church walk the walk. In verse 5 he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And when Paul or other New Testament writers or even the Old Testament uses the word walk, it's an it's a idiom. It basically just means live. It's, it's a conducting of one's life. You know what? He's referring to how you conduct yourself in the world. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Notice that he wants them to be aware of outsiders, he wants them to be on their radar. He wants them to know who's a believer and who's not. And for those who are not, he wants them to live next to them wisely. Okay. Wisdom is what he calls for. Wisdom is a broad theme across the scriptures, and we looked at a bunch of Proverbs back in August. And Proverbs is sort of the book of wisdom. Uh, it's among other wisdom literature in the Old Testament. But it makes clear that only in fearing the living God can one truly live wisely. Okay? That's the, the message of Proverbs. But here in Colossians, wisdom is more specific than that. You know, as with most of the themes in Colossians, uh, apropos our series title, Jesus plus nothing, wisdom is Christ-centered. Back in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul, he's recounting his struggle of prayer for the whole region that this church is in. And he says that he prays that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then it says, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need to know about wisdom is hidden in Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. Oh, sorry. do 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 To walk in wisdom among outsiders is first to be aware of where our neighbors are at with Jesus. To be aware that they are outsiders. Right? I mean, that's what he says. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. How do you know unless you know whether they know Jesus or not? And so first is to be aware that they are outsiders. But second, it is to live your life in light of Christ. It is to live your life like Christ. Walk in wisdom. And I love that Paul starts here and talks of lifestyle and, and how we are conducting ourselves without our words first. He's talking about our character before he suggests using words, because as we all know, as, we all, as we've all learned, The way we conduct ourselves and our lives speaks so much louder than our words. Right? So much louder. The way we live our lives before others, it either bolsters or undermines our message about Christ. It can do both. It can do either. But it's not neutral. But Paul doesn't stop there. Now, there's an old adage, which is falsely attributed to St. Francis, which says this. Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Have you guys heard that? It's complete garbage. Okay, that's my shock value statement. Now, I'm going to asterisk that. As we just saw... Walking in wisdom towards non-Christians is important and necessary. Our actions matter. Our behavior matters intensely. And our, our actions can make or break our credibility. When we are Christians and we are walking in gossip, when we are walking in filthy language, when we are walking in whatever, fill in the blank and someone knows you're a Christian, they take note of it, good or bad. But, okay, but. Gospel, as we mentioned earlier, means good news. News, okay? You guys watch the news, or more likely you read the news, right? When you turn on the news... Or your favorite news app? What if they didn't use any words? What if you just opened up the site, turned on the channel, and it was just an anchor sitting there smiling, waving at you? (laughs) That would not be news. It'd be someone who's nice waving at me. That's not news. News means something happened. That's why it's news. They're telling you. You didn't know it. They're telling you. Most of the news we watch, not good news. It's bad news. We still should probably know it, but it's something that happened. Okay? People who think you can preach the gospel without words have an incorrect definition of gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is news. It's something tangible. It's something concrete that happened. It's historical. Something happened on this earth roughly 2,000 years ago. It was witnessed by people. They lived a life, they told other people when they were about to die, they wrote it down. Why did they write it down? For you. Eyewitness testimony of something that actually happened. That is the gospel. That is news. Jesus Christ lived on this earth. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly kept God's law that we looked at earlier. And then, as a part of God's definite plan from before the foundation of the world, he died a death. And he died at the hands of lawless men, but it was according to the definite plan of God. Why? Because he was, as the words of John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus lived a perfect life, the life we couldn't, the life we can't. He died the death that we deserve because of our breaking of God's law. And then he rose from the dead to be Lord of all creation, to be given all authority in heaven and on earth. And you are invited to receive him as both your Lord and your Savior. Savior because you're in sin and need rescue. You need transference from one kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. And Lord, because he is on the throne and we need someone to worship and follow. When we worship and follow ourselves, it doesn't go well. When we worship and follow the philosophies and ideologies of the culture, it doesn't go well. When we follow Jesus, that's life. Okay? That's one way of saying the gospel. That's longer than you could. Here's another one from Paul. Christ died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's the gospel from Paul. Notice that it's tangible. It's concrete. It's concrete. It's not ethereal. It's not a list of rules. It's not even a list of character traits of God. It's something that happened. That's the news. There are many words you can use to articulate the gospel, but that's the thing. You cannot share the gospel without words. And so Paul moves from walking the walk to talking the talk. The gospel comes through speech, and Paul is concerned for these believers to be able to talk the gospel to those who are outside. He says, let your speech, and the word for speech there is logos, which is the word for message. It also can can include verbal speech, but Paul is clearly concerned with uh, gospel proclamation. Proclamation. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so there are three elements of gospel talk that Paul delineates here. First, Paul says that their speech or message must be gracious. And so that word gracious is just grace, the word for grace, charis. And, you know, therefore, it's not clear if Paul is talking about capital g grace here like the grace of god in salvation or if he wants to encourage them towards gracious speech of just just kind gentle words i think it's probably both you know it's it's gracious speech informed by god's grace and so for us in our conversations in our relationships with those who are non-christians especially our conversations about jesus we always always, always need to remember where we came from, okay? We were in need. We were completely desperate and unable to save ourselves, and God, in his lavish love and grace, saved us. We can't ever forget that in your posture towards outsiders, in your posture toward those who don't know Jesus yet, you must remember where you were before Christ. But for the grace of God, there go I. And Paul says as much in chapter 3, verse 7, after mentioning the sexual sins he wants them to be rid of. He says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. He's saying, you know where you were and God saved you by his grace. So let your speech reveal that. Our speech should illustrate our knowledge of being rescued by grace. So that's first. Second, Paul says their speech should be seasoned with salt. That's strange. What does that mean? seasoned with salt he's using a metaphor here clearly right he's not saying like take salt and like throw salt out next to your mouth you know he's not being weird like i am being weird right now he's saying your speech should be seasoned with salt and thankfully we have some words of jesus that can lend some understanding here jesus says that christians are the salt of the earth and then he says this, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, Jesus said. And so, in calling us to season our speech with salt, Paul is saying that we cannot leave out the flavor. We cannot leave out what differentiates us from others. Basically, we can't leave out the gospel. If all we are is nice people, yeah, yeah, we make great coworkers, but we're leaving out the best part of who we are and what makes us tick. I like the metaphor of salt here because when you salt something, there always needs to be a balance. Right? You can undersalt something and you can oversalt something. The saltiness of a dish is a, is a delicate balance. I make popcorn very regularly at home. And there are times when I undersalt, there are times when I oversalt. But sometimes it's just right. And Anna and I look at each other during the show that we're watching, and we say, this is a good batch. (laughs) True story. It'll probably happen tonight. Uh, So you can overdo it. You can underdo it. This is why we need wisdom. This is why we need, as Jesus promises, the Holy Spirit of God. The very person of God being with us, guiding us in our speech helping us know when we should hold up and give a little more. You know, if you're someone that people perceive as opinionated and loud, you may need to dial it back on the salt and err on the side of graciousness. Maybe. If you're someone that is afraid to ruffle feathers or offend people, you might need to turn up the salt And trust God that it's going to be okay if you tell someone you're a Christian. Here's the key. We as sinners who have been rescued should care for the souls of those who have not received the rescue themselves. At the very least, if you've been gifted something incredible and there are others in this world who that gift is available to and yet haven't partaken of it, you should care. You should care. That's where we should start. And if you care, then you can ask God to lead you in sharing this gospel with words, with actual words, with wisdom. And so our speech is seasoned with, uh, it's gracious, seasoned with salt. And then lastly, Paul emphasizes the individual nature of this gospel ministry. You know, everyone you encounter is different. And so he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Each person. There's a one-size-fits-all gospel but there's not a one size fits all process to how people come to receive that gospel. For some, it'll take 1,000 conversations over many years. And you have no idea where you are in that process for that person. For others, it'll take three conversations over a few weeks. Only God knows where your coworker is, where your family member is where whoever you come across is in that process. And he wants to use you, someone who's, who has limited time coming across someone else who has limited time, someone who knows them personally, to tailor his gospel, not to change the, the true facts of what Jesus has done, but to tailor how the gospel comes to them, to exactly how and when they will be ready He's enlisting you. He's enlisting me. Woo! That's exhilarating. That's frightening. That's difficult. That's exciting. But most good things in life have all of those wrapped up. This means we can and should lean in relationally to unbelievers. We need not be afraid to draw near to people. Why? because Jesus came and incarnated as, as God, he came and took on flesh. How much more should we come in and be with people incarnationally? And yet, beyond that, we lean in because how else will we know how to answer each one if we don't know them personally? How will you know how to answer questions if you don't know where the person's coming from. There's always going to be people who say no. It's true. People have that fork in the road. But it's up to us to be that person to, to deliver the gospel to them. And so remember where Paul started here. Prayer. He started with prayer. He said, continue steadfastly in prayer. That's where we start. Drawing near to God, aware of both his love and his plan. Our participation in that plan is a gift. That we get to participate in the work of God, the mission of God what he's doing in the world. What an honor. I know that we are all in different places when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to mission and and a heart for the lost, a heart for people who don't know Jesus. Many of us have baggage from our past experiences of church, maybe baggage from seeing the hypocrisy that's rampant in the church. But Look how Paul suggests we go about it. Word and deed. Actions and speech. We are called to bear witness to the incredible lordship of Jesus. And he's so worthy of our witness. We need the Spirit's help. Without the Spirit, we're going to oversalt, we're going to undersalt, it's just going to go bad. We need his help to be a light on this hill. You know, not just in the way we live, but with our words. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to be bold in Seattle. It's, it's hard to, to say what you think <laughs> about anything. For me, anyway. Some of you are better at it than me. You know, so here's a couple challenges. This week, ask the Spirit to provide both an opportunity and the words, to share something about Jesus with someone this week, whether it's a coworker or whoever you're around regularly. Okay, that's one challenge. And I know, it, I mean, it's pretty like conservative as far as challenges go. I didn't, it's not a huge like triple dog dare or anything to ask God to, to open a door for you, but just watch, watch. Watch and see what he'll do if you do that. Second, try out going on one of these prayer evangelism walks with the mission group. Come on. (laughs) Expose yourself to an intentional time of evangelism. I know it's uncomfortable for many people, but it won't kill you. I promise. And God may just excite you through it to go back to your normal life with a fresh awareness of his bigger picture plan. And if you're an outsider today, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't trust in Jesus for your salvation, for your eternal hope and all this stuff, if you don't trust the Bible as the source of truth for you, you should know that according to the Christian faith as laid down by the eyewitness testimony of Actual people. The only way to become an insider is Jesus. He said he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God except through him. But it's okay to have your questions. You know, I want to challenge you to be bold with God about your questions. If he's real, he can take it. And those of us who are inside are merely those who have come to realize our need for Jesus. We're not better than you. In fact, we're probably worse. But no other system, no other religion, philosophy, political agenda, or ideology comes close to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He receives you as you are. He gives you forgiveness. He gives you identity. He gives you a place at the table. He gives you a calling. He gives you an invitation to live life like it should be lived. That's what he said. He says, I want to give them abundant life. Tools for both humility because you always need him, but also confidence, because he's always with you. This is the message of the gospel. This is the thing that gets Christians out of bed, or it should, if we properly understand it. So let's pray for that proper understanding. Father God, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you that the gospel created the church. And we're, we're just, we're merely a bunch of sinners who are trying to come to grips with how much God loves us. We are, we have been graced. We're not goody two-shoes. We're not people that are, that are on paper the best people. We are simply people who know that we're needy for the grace of the God that became a man that took on flesh, that humbled himself even to the point of death and took on our burdens on himself so that we could be rich, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could receive life. We praise you for this gospel. We thank you for it. I pray that it would sink into the very bones of our bodies, Lord, so that it might well up in us to prioritize it. Even in our prayers, even in our lives, and especially with our words. Holy Spirit, we need you desperately. I pray that you would come upon each one here who, who desires to be your vessel, who desires to, to make your name great in this world. I pray for those here who are outside, whether they're on the fringe or they've sort of walked away or they're just interested I pray that you would continue the process of showing yourself to them, that even the fact that they're sitting here today would show them that you are drawing them. They might be looking, they might be searching, they might be seeking, but it's actually you that is seeking after them. Just like a shepherd goes after his lost sheep, you're going after them. I pray that you would reveal that to them by your spirit and that they would eventually surrender and give in to the greatest thing that has ever or could ever happen to them. The God of the universe offering them a relationship with him and forgiveness for everything they've done and new life and eternal hope. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to spend some time just in singing and worshiping uh, the Lord. And then we're going to have Brittany and Ben up front available for prayer. Uh, For those of you who are carrying heavy burdens. Uh, For those of you who are not even Christians, but you're seeking, you're curious, and you want to experiment with someone praying for you, you're welcome to come receive prayer. Any of those who would like to receive prayer, come on forward and and you can receive prayer from them. And then lastly, if you've given yourself to Jesus, if you've uh, declared allegiance to him and him alone, uh, you are welcome to participate in communion this morning. And communion represents the death that he died for us. Uh, The cracker represents the body that was broken for us. The juice represents the blood that was spilled out for us. This is the thing that happened. This is the gospel, what Jesus did. So every time we participate in it, as Paul says, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And indeed, he is coming again. So let's worship.